0: Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Message in a Bottle. Uh, It's great to have you back if you are a returning listener and if you're new then big, big welcome. Uh, So about a month ago now I was lucky enough to sit down and have a chat with Elliot Cable. Uh, Elliot is an actor who studied at Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts. Um, He graduated in 2018 and already since then he's had leading roles in theatre, television and short and feature films. You might know him as PC Brody in Dead Again, Redmond O'Neill in Autopsy, and Hans Lingstrad in the upcoming film The Lady from the Sea. Uh, This was a kind of momentous podcast step for me, because I didn't really know Elliot prior to recording this podcast. He was a friend of a friend, and we'd met briefly, and I thought he was really interesting, so I invited him to come and speak. Um, But this meant I I didn't know him, I don't know his interests, Uh, I didn't know about really his acting history Um, so it was exciting and very anxiety inducing because I didn't know the direction that the conversation might go in Uh, however I'm very glad with how it turned out he's a very very interesting person and has a lot to say about not only uh, acting but time and space as well Uh, I would definitely obviously recommend a listen Um, yeah I hope you enjoy so, Elliot, welcome to Message in a Bottle. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Mm. Um, so, this one is an interesting podcast because I don't know you very well. No. <laughs> You're a friend of a friend. A friend of a friend. And, yeah, it's uh, there's kind of anticipation and also a little bit of nervousness because mm. I don't know which direction this is going to go in. I've felt I with know. Jack, I know his thing's fitness. I know with Josh, his thing is spirituality. Not so sure with you. So yeah, this, this could go is... a bit rogue. We don't, <laughs> I don't, yeah. We'll see. Mm.
1: Um,
0: so, give us kind of a brief summary about who you are. Uh,
1: sure. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm an actor, mm-hmm. um, which is fun. And um, I never really know where to go with these like tell us who you are things. But so,
0: is it more stage or screen?
1: Screen, screen. more. Okay. Not not to say I, I don't enjoy stage. It's one of those things, but like my um, my background was a lot in screen like the way I kind of got started was a lot of short films and student films and stuff and it just kind of transpires that one gets the other especially when you get footage back and you can put that into your show it becomes Uh it snowballs a lot easier than I think theatre does um for me I found it very difficult to get theatre work so I've kind of just sort of rested on my Screen I find novels that quite, as we go along.
0: I find that quite interesting because your voice is so like powerful, you'd feel like you'd yeah. fill a theatre. I well, you wouldn't need to worry about projection.
1: Yeah, it's funny. When, we, when I was at drama school, we had this um, uh, woman who does amazing radio and um, voiceover work kind of. Um,
0: what would sit you know though. her from?
1: She does the EE adverts, like all of the EE adverts, and like That's Orange right. Team I Rush, does a lot of video games as well. She's honestly incredible. And um, she was like, was like going around the room like a whole sort of cohort, and was like, "I'm going to tell you like the characteristics of your voice and what you'd be good for." And people would talk for like thirty seconds and kind of like, you know, she she suss them out straight away. And then I started speaking, and she just didn't have a clue. I was speaking to at her for about three minutes, <laughs> um, and she was like, "I really don't know," but she was like, "I definitely hear you at the back of the Olivier." So I was like, "I would take that as a as yeah. a compliment." Um, but but some I've had that for like. Grabbed you in. Yeah, I just I think for me it's a lot more naturalistic and I'm very good at playing normal people doing normal things mm-hmm. but in extraordinary circumstances. and um, So I feel like, yeah, naturalism is something I'm much, much better at and I'm kind of better with sort of slightly smaller nuances. With stage, obviously, all of that stuff still applies. You yeah. still have that, but it just needs to be slightly bigger mm-hmm. in order for it to be seen. That's um, interesting, because so, when you were
0: talking about like the naturalistic, in my head I'm thinking, well, I know with with uh, screen, there's a lot of stopping and starting and retaking, and mm, yeah. in, in my head that's always been less natural, because you don't have that progression of a scene to build on in one yes, go. Yes,
1: true, very, very but true. But I suppose,
0: as you say, the, the actual some nuances within that scene mm. is a lot more
1: subtle. Yeah, there's. I, I think there's this kind of thing that you have to learn where you... You kind of need to be able to just drop into a scene mm-hmm. um, because, like you said, you you stop and start, especially when they change shots and they start doing sort of reverses and and cutaways and stuff. You'll find yourself. only doing, you know, your half there. You'll only be doing. Man,
0: that's so strange.
1: Um, well, I mean, obviously you will have an actor opposite mm-hmm. you still mm-hmm. saying the lines, but it's kind of you. You then got to go. Okay, well this, you obviously you need to be on top of your game the whole time. But you know, there's a there's part of you that goes when the camera is on you for your reversal. You go. Okay, like, this is, this, is, this is what I've got to be, like, really good. Um, then yeah, there's, like, cutaways where you'll do things that are quite unnatural and things that are a bit jarring and kind of... Uh, and, and, I mean, to, to add to it, a lot of films are shot out of sequence. Like, they're not chronological.
0: I've had that. I've had things with, like, um, big blockbuster romances and their first scene was their sex scene or their yeah. really romantic yeah, scene at yeah, the yeah. end. And it's like, these guys didn't actually know each other during Yeah,
1: I, I mean, case in point, I did, I did a short film um, a couple of months back and... The first day, the first scene we shot was the last scene of the film, which was all of us in a bar after all of this kind of drama's happened. And then I actually ended up having this kind of, like, make-out scene with this girl. And it's this kind of thing of, like, yes, hello. Oh, I'm Elliot. Oh, nice to meet you. And we're kissing. Like it's it's it is very it's very jarring at times because you, you do have to have that ability to just... Um, you know, drop in something. And I think when you when you do enough script work, when you do enough character work, when you do enough preparation, that that kind of comes effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I kind of learned over time. There's never sort of too much preparation. I don't think.
0: Do you find you ever get typecast?
1: Oh, massively. I, especially what at the moment, policeman or soldier. It's at the moment. I the amount of jobs I've had as, as policeman is is insane. I think I it, it comes from I did one short film. Uh huh. Called Positive Action. It's on Amazon Prime. If you want to watch it, <laughs> quick plug for the oh, listeners. Oh, you good? Um, you're good. <laughs> my first time. Um, and on there, I played a policeman, and I was just like this young, quite new to the force policeman. And it's, I can see that. I can yeah, see that so well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's um, it's just one of those things where it was it was a good film, and so I used it a lot for. It's been promoted a lot. It's um. It's kind of, there's been screenings, there's been reviews, there's been a lot of photos and it's in my showreel. So when you go onto my spotlight profile, you see my headshots, you go on my showreel, it's the first thing that comes up. I
0: haven't even looked at that yet. That was bad preparation well, on my part. I just, hey, you know, should have had more of an idea. There's still
1: time. <laughs> um, and it's, because it's the first thing that comes up and typically speaking, I think a lot of cast and directors, a lot of agents of directors will really only watch the first minute, minute mm-hmm. and a half of your showreel and the first minute is that scene. Then you've got also other things of me being like, I don't know, like a student or like a young professional and things like that that show more range. But I think it's because that is the first thing a lot of people kind mm. of come into that. But at the moment, it's, it's been great. Like, it's got me a lot of work. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I did a feature film quite recently where they just watched my show and they were just like, yeah, we just we need to do that. <laughs> so it, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse in a way. Um, but at the moment, I'm kind of just steering into that, that typecast skid. Sure. Um and it's been it's been good so far, actually.
0: So aside from actor, what are your other what um, other things do you fall under?
1: I oh, that's a horrible question. Well, it's like
0: asking you to read out your C V. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me I mean, what you're good at. <laughs> well, well yeah.
1: I very broadly academic. Like uh-huh. before before I went to drama school I actually studied history for three years at a university. And um Which uni? University of Kent. In Canterbury. Nice. Um, yeah, man, it was it was great, and I, I fucking loved it, man. Like it was amazing. Like I, the course was brilliant. I did a dissertation that I loved. Like I was, I, I was one of the few people that really genuinely enjoyed my dissertation, and the whole experience was was brilliant. I found out a lot about myself, about a lot of things I'm interested in through that course, and it was it was really really good, and um, it kind of sparked this. <laughs> my dissertation was on the standardisation of time. Um, so it's all very kind of oh. like yeah it was a lot about the, the history of technology and the history of science um and uh, it it just I found out a lot about the other things I'm very interested in and science time space the universe really kind of came into that um I mean my my lecture lecturer sorry Omar was was just Omar Nassim mm-hmm. and he he's a bad boy (laughs) he was he was i i owe a lot to him he was incredible he's uh, this um canadian lecturer and um he's actually in germany at the moment he he went to oxford i think he taught oxford i can't remember and he he just he case in point i i went to uni being like i'm gonna do like boy history Mm -hmm. boy in the uh, like the wars uh, and things yeah exactly wars and revolutions and um i went i did a wild module in the history of science and just, like, fell for it. Mm-hmm. And then Omar took all of the modules after that. And he – for example, we did um, – it was an, a module called Tools of Empire, which was kind of looking at, like, technology and science in the empire. And um, the first lecture seminar that we had was about lines. Like, he was literally like, we're going to look at lines, lines on paper, lines on this, that. And I was just like, fuck, man, this is going to suck. I'm doing this for, like mm-hmm. – next sort of 10 12 12 weeks and it he found a way to make lines fascinating and I and I left that that one class being like man I'm sold Mm -hmm. it was it was incredible
0: it makes such a difference when the professor Mm. you can tell that they love their subject yeah I think it's and I don't blame them but it's so easy I think for them to become very disillusioned yeah with the red tape and the bureaucracy and all of the shit that they have to do just to be reemployed that next year they have yeah. to jump through so many hoops but when there's that intrinsic passion and mm. they they don't want to read a book to you and give you the answers they want you to be inspired yeah, by yeah
1: exactly and they and give I you think that
0: freedom as he well he
1: was is kind of like forefront of that mm-hmm. uh how old is segment. he
0: is he young is he old is he so yeah, he's,
1: he's quite young for like uh, sure. a lecture i'd say he's maybe like mid-40s mm-hmm. um so he was kind of like the handsome bad boy. Uh-huh. Of, we of, had like, we uh, had that the in English, you know. I can't remember his name. Um, someone. He was
0: he was fantastic. Yeah. He did, like, uh, very, he did sort of things on video games in English literature. It was, oh, wow. He was fun- fantastic.
1: I think that was. I think that he he was very relevant and he was very modern and he kind of he took a lot of that kind of stuff in his stride. He was writing books. You know, he was really on top mm-hmm. of it. He wasn't this sort of jaded lecturer who you know sat in a stuffy office he was very proactive in his field and he showed us and took us to some incredible places and for example there was this um we went we went to the, the um, oh, oh, it's not um <laughs> this to so the science museum in london they have an archive like a kind of storeroom where everything that's not on display is kept and he took us there and it was just like amazing mm. and we saw all these fantastic things
0: it's curious to see what they didn't think was well, yeah, I mean, valid there's, there's enough to show and display. And you go
1: like, fuck, look, I would have loved to see yeah. that. in, a, in a, But I guess it's, it's as exhibitions kind of come and go, they put stuff the out. Is, um yeah. And there's a guy, and it, the fact that I can't remember his name is, if Omar ever listens to this, I, <laughs> I, he would be disappointed. But this guy who made um, models of the moon and, and drawings of the moon, and um, it was like the first time it would ever been done. And there, somewhere in the world, there was a really large... Kind of scale model of the moon that this guy made from his kind of observations, and he'd drawn and he'd kind of from a hundred different pieces made this scale model of the moon, and it had been lost for God knows how many years, and um, people had been searching for it, and and he kind of was talking about it, and there was like a sort of drawing on uh, of what the model looked like, mm-hmm. and he just casually dropped that he thought he might have found it. And um, you know, in some sort of storage bin in Leeds or something like, he just, and he just so he's really very proactive. And, and that having him, someone like him to to lead a course, it was um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a game changer for me. I, and I I just I just fell for it. Mm. And he did this whole we did this whole week on um, time and time as a tool and time as a means of colonisation. Which to me, you know. Time is just what's on my phone or my yeah, watch or really on the clock on the wall. And, um, what was the
0: suggestion?
1: Literally, the idea of um, time prior to the sort of eighteen eighties was, um, you know, the time in London was different to the time in Brighton was different to the time in Somerset. Yeah, there was it was, like it was that. local time mm-hmm. because people used sundials and and such to to and obviously you can use the sun to tell the time, the stars to tell the time, and. It's different from wherever you are in the world, with the country, or, or, or what, what have you, and um, with sort of technology. So, like mail carriages, railways, telegrams,
0: it all had to be centralised. Everything
1: had to be. You to what we, you know, if a train was leaving London at one pm London time to go to Bristol, and you say it gets to Bristol at three o'clock, was that three o'clock Bristol time? Was that three o'clock? Mm-hmm london time and then if you're getting on at bristol what time do you get there and so there was a suddenly a need for people to synchronize their watches and for people to to, to become synchronized and standardized um and then in sort of the 1880s there was this big meridian conference where they they discussed that greenwich would be used for the the prime meridian because it was being used a lot anyway for global trade and sort of uh, ships and stuff and um You know, to sort of uh, cut a long story short, they basically, there came with standardisation came this idea that we are modern and we are civilised because we've taken time. Uh, Because around that time there was this sort of scientific revolution of mm -hmm. we no longer believe theology and things like that. We, you know, God is not a good enough reason for this to be correct. We need evidence. We need proof. Things need to be concrete. We
0: studied some of this in English. There was that gathering, like global gathering, and it was in England, and it was held under this sort of glass.
1: Oh, the the Great Exhibition or something like that. Yeah, it? I
0: can't remember what it was called. There was a specific name for it, and we studied that during Gothic, our Gothic module, because there was this, as this sort of scientific approach the enlightenment yeah. became a thing, there was this resistance of like, well, let's bring in the uncanny, let's bring in this kind of, that we're not as in control as we think we are. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and, that's, and, and there was this whole thing of, of building machines that could kind of, were, were self-recording kind of self in a way, so they, they built machines that meant suddenly you didn't have to do things by hand anymore mm-hmm. because it was more reliable to do it with this this machine. And it it just kickstarted this whole thing of like we need evidence, we need proof, everything needs to be concrete, everything needs to be reliable because the human hand is part of nature and nature is chaotic, mm. nature is unreliable. This is
0: kind of this homo- homogenized homogenization. That's the word I'm looking gotcha. for. Gotcha. Of yeah, and it's it's really now reflectively I find it really sad because mm. you're getting rid of this kind of individuality and you know traders before it would take you. 10 times as long to create the same number of hats but each sure. one would have like a quirk would be different yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and we lost that
1: as because yeah it was it was decided that literally the hand s- like symbolized chaos c- chaos and just unreliability and so suddenly we had this desire to remove everything as far from nature as possible and um with that came time and um suddenly using the sun the moon the stars the flora the fauna to tell the time was, you know, very base and very kind of uncivilized and uncouth and, and savage. Right. And so you take that out yeah. from the metropolis, which was England, into the colonies of the Empire, and you suddenly see places in Papua New Guinea that are still using those things to tell the time. And you know, the white man comes in and says, oh, I'm here to liberate you from nature. I here, here's a clock. Here is an organized work schedule. Come and work in this factory that we've opened and you will get you know, an hour of, of downtime every day, and you will have your lunches and your dinners, and you have everything set for yeah. you. And um, but in the
0: same vein, you're going to lose track of the natural cycles within your body. Absolutely,
1: yeah. It, it it was it was detrimental in terms of like mm-hmm. again flora and fauna. It it meant there was issues in kind of crops and and, and whatnot and harvests. And but you know, time time became a tool of me saying to you, I regulate my body by the incredibly reliable cogs and machines of this swiss clock on the <laughs> wall and you use what you use the stars like how ridiculous how unreliable how chaotic that is because they realize that a day is not exactly 24 hours a week is not exactly seven days and so the way we do it it absolutely it is. bloody is but the way you do it, it isn't it so we are more civilized than you because you are still nature you are still chaotic and so I will come in and I will dominate you and you will be part of this culture because I am elevating you. That was it. It was the whole thing of elevating you to my level. To my level. Um,
0: Which, yeah, obviously had this incredible appeal, but even as you're saying this, now I feel like there's, there is a pushback because I feel more of an appeal to go back to this unregulated, hmm. chaotic state and not stick to this, you know, nine to five... Yeah fit your meal you know you shouldn't have breakfast before a certain time or after a certain time it's
1: just I don't know yeah it's why I feel like we, we can be like that now because we have the, the liberty to the luxury and the yeah. luxury to exactly we, we don't have anyone imposing that well you know to, a, to an extent um, but yes yeah, so I, I just as got, an
0: actor you don't <laughs> yeah which my, my life is a sham it's, yeah,
1: I don't have regular work I wake up when I want to it's uh, no I try and keep a strict schedule So sure but no, it was it was really, really genuinely fascinating. Just learning about how kind of this dominant culture of the clock kind of came in because literally people live and die by you know the hands on a mm. clock on the wall now, and um, that was really crazy. That was a, a really kind of one of those things that I just didn't. It's, it's just not something you think about because time is so it's omnipresent and it's intrinsic everywhere all the life. time, so intrinsic that you you don't question why. The clock, the time is what the time says it is on the wall. Is we don't question that anymore, Um, and that's because you know they they had, they they colonised the world because of it, and they and they had meetings to say okay we're going to create time zones and we're going to go from zero degrees at Greenwich outwards, um, east and west, and we're going to jump an hour accordingly, and it was it became so flippant that again when I was doing my dissertation it. I was looking at all of these um, sort of telegrams and and minutes of meetings and stuff and and there was a point where um, one of the ministers who was in, British ministers in Papua New Guinea telegrammed back to the home office and said, oh, um, you know, the the natives really aren't happy because they finished work in our factories and they've only got 45 minutes of, um, of time to relax before they need to go to bed. And so they telegrammed back and they were like, Right, we'll push the time back by 15 minutes, give them an hour, and they'll be fine. So, during time, became a very, very flippant thing to, to control. And, and it's mad, isn't uh, it, because now,
0: the idea of this flippancy and of changing, just moving the clock, like, that's unfeasible, and yeah. our iPhones adjust to the time automatically, so yeah. we're, we rely on them to this degree.
1: Yeah, but then in the, in the, in the really... I, I found recently they're talking about getting rid of daylight savings time. Apparently. I, I, I I just heard it kind of through the grapevine that they're talking about did I say grapevine? Grapevine. <laughs> um that they're looking they to get rid one of it. And a half
0: beers and he's and, already... I know,
1: Jesus Christ. <laughs> um and they're talking about getting rid of it, um, probably as a as a part of it once we leave Europe because oh. we're no longer <laughs> kind of like I'm not you know, we're not gonna go there. <laughs> but as we're because there. we're not a, a kind of farming agricultural nation so anymore. We so need... we just literally don't need it. oh
0: god but it's so depressing imagine
1: yeah i don't know what that would be like i I can't imagine it would be too much different but it it but we're still kind of just fucking with time as we feel yeah
0: yeah that's true as we
1: as we kind of fancy it um so it's yeah very interesting
0: it is uh, yeah i've never even i've never even questioned it as a thing like as you say it, mm. it's such an intrinsic part of our lives that you just you just accept it
1: yeah blindly
0: and you might um, moan when you lose an hour of sleep but you
1: there's yeah. no
0: way that you would be like I'm, I'm just not yeah.
1: doing it and and you, know, you don't not only kind of your routines but you just you don't question why
0: mm.
1: why it is what it says it is you know why like why is it what's the time now half two yeah because in reality if I reckon if I took a sundial out and measured the time by the sun, it's probably not half two. Like it's it's I'd
0: be really curious to try that.
1: I would be actually. I just I I've do You know never have a
0: homemade sundial?
1: There is a way to do it. I can't we we can Google it. <laughs> we, can, um, we can Google, we can YouTube. But it's it's one of things where like we have created a society where a day is twenty four hours, a week is seven days, a year is three hundred and sixty five mm. and a quarter. It's Jamie, it's not we don't really take into account the the rhythm of nature. Well, not, say not really, we don't. We don't take into account yeah, the, the rhythm of nature. It's not something that really um, changes the way you look at things. I watched this thing
0: things. the other day where they, they put this, I think it was like an ex-Navy SEAL or something, so like very resilient, you know, his body had been through God, crazy things, his mind had been through even more, and they put him in this cave, and he didn't have anyone with him, but he had some way of communicating with the people that were filming. And in this cave, there was no natural daylight, so there was—I I, can't—I can't remember if he was in the darkness or if they just had lights on all the time. But his body clock completely shifted. So instead of the sort of awake twelve hours, sleep eight hours, whatever that we do at the moment, he would be awake for thirty-six hours and then sleep for twelve hours. Like oh. his his natu- natural natural in commas, body clock shifted when there was no sort of concept of day and night yeah which God. is yeah and do you know alan watts he's a he's the a name philosopher uh Bell. was a philosopher his voice i'll, I'll show you some youtube his yeah. afterwards he's fantastic um anyone listening i recommend <laughs> him up. alan watts um but he talked about uh there was this man who went to a uh, white man went to Africa. Um, was working with people there and was horrified by the conditions that they were living in. So doubled their wages, and then was really surprised when they showed up half the time. And to them, the time off was more valuable than this yeah. money because. And he couldn't fathom it. He could not understand why yeah. they wouldn't want you know to work just as much and have more money to sure. have a more yeah, yeah, yeah. enriching life. You know, but they they valued this time more. They didn't mm. have this concept of you should work x number of hours and. It should be
1: your life, like Yeah. I feel like I'm like that though. Yeah. Really. Not I mean it's a weird comparison, but I I realised in kind of the last year or so or a couple of years that I'm just like really unmotivated by money. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a money motivated person, I think. I, I always thought I was, which is what's interesting. I always thought that you know, money's like get money
0: and
1: yeah. do stuff with it. Um but now I'm just like Especially, you know, being—I think—being an actor because you don't earn a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> um, up, obviously, up to up to a certain point. Um, you know, I've I've got sort of survival jobs, and to be fair, I'm I'm quite lucky. I I genuinely do really enjoy my survival job. It's um is is really good, but at the same time, it's there is part of it's like reluctant to work more than a certain number of hours. Mm-hmm. It's like, I just can't. I'd rather, my, my kind of mantra has just become, I'd rather be acting. So as long as there's anything else to me, I'd just be like, I'd rather be acting, to be honest. I like, can, you know, whether it's low paid, unpaid, whatever, I, I kind of just find myself being like, you know, I rather than sort of sitting around the house or having a shift at work, I'd rather be doing something creative and, and being kind of, you know, that way enriched, I guess, than, than just being kind of materialistically well off. There
0: was um, uh, Henry David Thoreau when he wrote Walden. Uh, this is the guy that built a house sort of just on the outskirts he was kind of in a forest and he wanted to take himself away from society yeah. as it was because he just thought this is so I don't want to be part of like this capitalism yeah. culture and he says that all of these men are figuring out how to make people want to buy their baskets instead of someone else's yeah. basket and how they can make it better and I'm trying to figure out how I don't need to sell any baskets at all. Like how I can live in a way that I don't need to sell goods Yeah and I don't need to earn this wage like by just living efficiently and living honestly. Which I bet it's harder to do when you're living in London. Yeah, well, but
1: Yeah. I just yeah. I go through this constant state of flux where I'm like, I just wanna move into the wilderness of Canada mm-hmm. and have a dog and disregard society as a whole and just be like a man of the wilderness I'm so with you there. but then but then other days I'd be like yeah I want like my penthouse apartment in the centre of London and my like you know my Lamborghini in the garage you know and, and so I'm just in this constant state of flights of wanting to be that man of the wild but mm. also being like a complete suit
0: I was travelling for so long and really trying to find this kind of community that I could live like that mm. that it was a feasible option where everything was self-sustaining yeah, and this yeah. kind of yeah community and obviously now I've stopped and I'm living in London and I'm working a Monday to Friday nine to five yeah, which yeah. I've never had in my life and it took me a really long time to admit not just to other people but to myself that actually I kind of loved that structure because yeah. I haven't had it in so long mm. and I'd had it in my head like I just want to I want to be a child be of the earth yeah, and be yeah, free yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually for right now for the state yeah. that I'm this the way that I'm living right now actually this structure and this foundation to build on is, yeah. is what I want at the moment. Um, so it made me laugh at you like, yeah, it's just travelling
1: for so long. <laughs> like, oh, oh, right, are right, you? okay, cool. I uh, really casually just dropped that, like, it's just travelling for I so
0: said, long. It sounds like such
1: a <laughs> it's like, oh my gap, yeah, yeah. Was, oh my gap, yeah. Um, my three gap
0: years, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to
1: do. <laughs> no, that's good though, I, I back that a lot, man. I, I think there's so much, especially now there's so much pressure to like go to uni and mm have, as my parents love to say, something to fall back on. Yes, um, yes, which is that's why what I, I heard so
0: much, because I nearly yeah. went to drama school. Yeah. Um, my best friend and I, we uh, were in all the school plays together, and we were always kind of the, the big characters, so I was uh, Mrs Lovett and he was Sweeney Todd, mm. and I was Eponine and he was Marius, so we yeah. always did these things together. And then it got to the end of year 11, where we were making our decisions about college, and he went to somewhere called The Space, I like think Somerset, Performing Arts, something or other. And I was like, mm, I'm going to go for A-levels because then I have something to fall back on. That yeah, was my exactly. thing. And I just didn't have that bit of courage to be like, fuck it. This yeah, is what uh, I want to do. I
1: really wish I had because I, I did something similar. So I, I did like... The last time I studied drama prior to drama school was GCSE.
0: Mm. I was going to ask, um, you mentioned uni and then you went to drama school. Yeah, I it that. was...
1: So I, I went, when I went to college, I... Um, I didn't do drama because it was drama and theatre studies, and I hated the idea of the kind of academic side of right. of acting where you have to kind of just write stuff about theatre. They and I just, used you know, a, a
0: black curtain to represent exactly the falling that of the, that kind of yeah. shot. <laughs> um, That's what I was really good at. It's it was, I <laughs> wasn't. I like wasn't. Like, yeah, my way yeah Fair enough.
1: Um, and so I just did the kind of extracurricular plays. And it's one of those things where I wish like you know, I'd had the bottle to go. Well, actually I want to go to brick school because again there's a brick school um, so a, a few mates that I knew went, went to brick school straight out of school because they knew that was what they wanted to do and it's just a slight leg up into that kind of um, performing arts industry um, and you know even failing that coming out of college I wish I'd then had the, the balls to say to my parents okay I want to, want to go to drama mm-hmm. school I actually, I think I said that to them once, just on a whim, and they were like, "No, oh, no, no, just go, go to uni. You can do what you want afterwards, but just go to uni first, something to fall back on." Um, and and I did, and I think it was it was one of those things where like I made a decision where I was like, "Okay, acting is is a hobby, and it will stay a hobby, right. and it's fine. I'll do it in my in my spare time, but I will be this academic who goes to uni, does this, gets probably gets a fairly well paid office job, and kind of just lives like that." Um, but funny enough, it was while I was at uni and I started doing all these student films and stuff like that, That I just was like...
0: How
1: did you get into that? We met, I, was, I was actually really, really lucky. Well, I say lucky. I was, it was very... Um, I think I, I just... The University of Kent were, were great in the sense of like, they had this society called KTV, um, which is basically the Kent Television Network, which was essentially where kids... Kids? <laughs> um, <laughs> young The adults. students, the young adults... Um, could go and just create what literally whatever they wanted, short films, feature films, web series. They did news. They did sport coverage. They did all all kinds of, like, media stuff. And I just got really involved in that. And I made some really, really great friends through there. We made films together. We made web series together, short films, feature films, whatever. Um, And that just really simply allowed me to build, like, an online profile and some showreel material Mm -hmm. and... Again, like I said to you at the beginning, it, one thing, it snowballs quite quickly with film, you know, one thing led to another, and led to another, and, and you end up having this whole sort of backlog of credits, this whole showreel of footage, and um, so after doing that for three years, I just, again, as much as I love my dissertation, as much as I love the course, realistically, with a history degree, you, with, with an undergrad, you can, you can teach. You can, or you can go into an an unrelated office job, yeah, because you've got a degree.
0: I feel like Um, English and history. Yeah, English and history are very similar in that they're very broad as a degree. Yeah. So you can kind of do anything, but it's difficult because it doesn't funnel you into an Mm. option. So you leave Mm -hmm. and you're like, "Fuck."
1: Yeah. Feasibly I can do
0: anything, but what on earth do I actually want to do? To
1: specialize to be, you know, a historian, you had to Mm. specialize. For example, to to create another
0: what four years of education exactly.
1: exactly and I, I just I knew I just didn't it wasn't that I didn't have it in me I just couldn't I just didn't want to do it mm-hmm. I could have forced myself to do it I I, I, I think I would have been fine but I just, just didn't just didn't want to yeah um and I know I, I was always one of those things where when people ask me like oh what do you want to be I'd, I'd kind of very sheepishly go. Well, I want to be an actor, but like I'm doing history, so I think that what I really want to do is kind of be like a TV historian, you know, like the kind of Oh
0: man, you could be in horrible the, history, the David Attenborough
1: of, <laughs> of history, the History Channel or something. But yeah. I, so do you it's mean so there right, is? There is, but but at the same time, I kind of I said that as a as a means of kind of balancing the two, and then I got to the point where I was like, well, I don't want to do the the history stuff anymore because it's it's just yeah, and and I I kind of followed through on this this very. Um, young kind of uh, passion in my where I just kind of wanted to perform and I just wanted to act and be the centre of attention all the time and drama school was, it was a kind of great place to harness yeah. that and it, it was bloody brilliant man. I, I absolutely loved it um, you know it was, it was a bubble and at times a very kind of self-destructive bubble but one that really kind of I, I really just kind of got it together and, and kind of realised okay like this is this is the first steps into me being a professional now, um, and yeah, coming out the other end of that, it, it just it's yeah, I've I'm I'm now very kind of serious about it. And when people say to me like, "What do you do?" I you know hold my head high and tell them I'm an, a- I'm an actor. And it doesn't come with the air quotes. It doesn't come with the
0: oh, I'm yeah, an actor by working shot. It's it.
1: I don't have to exactly. I don't have to make excuses for myself anymore. Which you know if, if I if I learned nothing from drama school, just coming out with that confidence. Was invaluable. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, that that was kind of how I segued in from from academia into into, into acting. So um,
0: before time completely runs away with us, yeah. What what is your quote? What is your oh my god? Yeah, my
1: I've, I've <laughs> even done that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Try getting all of that into a message in a bottle. God damn. Can you um, imagine. Yeah. So it's be a like, like this massive, massive scroll
0: that just unloaded.
1: Um, right. So my. Um, message in a bottle, and um, it's it's not so much a like a quote from a book or anything. It's, uh, so my, I went to Mount View um, mm-hmm. Academy of Theatre Arts. Um, <laughs>
0: Very fancy. Yes,
1: and um, at our graduation, uh, the actor Eddie Marsden came along, and he, he got he was getting an honorary uh, doctor, I believe. My
0: Jeremy saying, uh, Paxman of mine. Oh my graduation.
1: God! That's <laughs> oh my May, what? Can you imagine a history grad having? If I had Jeremy, but I would have lost it was my mind. Mad. It was
0: absolutely oh mad. Oh my god! We were just a
1: We we had this um this kind of stuffy historian guy. We we got up on the stage and we were all like, Oh my god, oh my god <laughs> this is be boring. But to be fair to him, he gave this wicked speech about how we were like the future of you know we need to use history to learn and we are the future of this that. And then I was like, you yeah. know, that was absolutely great. Absolutely pumped. Yeah, from this from this old historian guy. I was like, wow, you've really pulled something out of your ass. Fair play, man. Um, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> right. So Eddie Marsden turned up, who is a fantastic actor. And again, I said saying to you before, he's one of those people where you don't know his name necessarily, but he turns his up face. in everything. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he went to Mount View as well. And he basically said to us, you know, um, you're, you, you can only do so much, and you can only walk into an audition room, do your very best, and leave and forget about it. That's all you can really do. There's no point obsessing over it. You go in, do your best, and leave. And essentially what he said was, you know, when you go into a room, have these, you know, literally prepare as as much as you can to do the best. Leave your little sprinkles of excellence everywhere you go and leave and go home. And, you know, eventually, if you are sprinkling your excellence around, people will talk and people will start to notice and one thing will lead to another and you'll be successful mm-hmm. in whatever way you kind of define success. And... Um, so and that stuck of with the, me man. The
0: drops in an ocean uh, context of like the things that you do in that moment you might not see a visible difference at that time.
1: Exactly. But it's so but it important to persist because yeah, it builds absolutely. up. It absolutely, absolutely builds up. Um, and it's always about who you know, not what you know, and eventually people start to, if you're if you are, you know, consistently, you know, good in whatever, you know, you could do a re- essentially what is it a, an awful student film. But as long as you give your best performance, mm. you you know accrue this backlog of very you know consistent good work, and you're kind of even if you don't get the roles, you you've done your best, you've you've given a very good performance. You'll be you'll hopefully be remembered. And people will talk, and you you might get called in. For example, I've, for things I haven't got, I've been called in again for future projects, and um. even for roles that I have got, they then want me back for other things. So do you, it's this thing where? You know, there's the one percent who get their really big break at a really young age and become these these superstars, but for the rest of us, it's it's this graft of just leaving the best of you behind mm. wherever you go, and and I think that was Eddie saying that was really kind of um yeah, mate. It kind so, of sucked yeah, me so when I go kind into of shift audition rooms.
0: Did that cause like how, what was your approach before that? Then when you heard that, you're like, oh fuck. I, like, good, I, I
1: don't really, I don't really know what it was, but when I now when I walk into audition room or when I get an audition through, I know in my head that, that resonates and I go, right, time for me to kind of, you know, get my, my excellence on. I <laughs> you know, to no, try and be, the because best. The best. I, I think there was a part of me, especially before I went to drama school where I was auditioning for like these independent projects and what on to fair. I was doing not to be arrogant about it, but I was doing quite well and I was getting quite a lot of work. Um, and so I think there's, there's, a lot of space to become complacent and there's a lot of space to become lazy mm-hmm. um, and so I think it was the shift of just being like well yeah I mean this is my one shot in you know I, I literally have a 10 minute window in front of this panel of people I don't know you know it's to really fucking blow them away and really mm-hmm. kind of make them remember who you are And, um, so there was that shift of, of no, of being like, okay, it's, you know, I I have to, yeah, I have to leave this because it is out of your hands. You you can do as much as you physically and mentally possibly can do, but in the end, once you walk out of that room after your 10 minute slot, it's completely, there's nothing you can do then.
0: Do you find that that kind of advice and that perspective makes it easier to deal with the rejections that inevitably come as an actor?
1: I think so, yeah. I, and I think I've always been very thick-skinned and mm-hmm. it's always made me quite good at just being like, okay, you know, I wasn't right for that thing at that time, fine. um, You know, again, I, I've, been, I've been thick-skinned in the sense of like I don't take rejection personally, it's a lot of people who do.
0: Um, I mean so much of it is based on your appearance exactly. and how you look with the other person who's gonna be in it and There's
1: there's so many variables that you literally mm. walking into a room and saying some lines is not sometimes enough to cut it. Yeah. You know what I mean? There is there is the way you look, the chemistry with someone they've maybe already cast. There's there's so many different things. Even for example, like the the mood and the kind of the day that the casting directors had, they might just be really not in the mood for your shit that day. And you might go in really bubbly and like, hi, oh, you know, i Elliot, nice to meet you. And they, you know, you're just They're not... They're not having it. Exactly. It's, there's so many variables. That... I was
0: reading something the other day about, uh, they were looking at judges doing parole hearings. Mm. And, uh, you know, they had, I think it was an average of six minutes that they considered each case to see whether they would let them ap- apply for parole. Or be granted parole, sorry. And there was this really horrifying result that the periods of time after their meal times, they there was like <laughs> a significant. I can't remember the the figure exactly, so I'm not going to quote it. But a significantly higher likelihood that you were going to be granted parole after they they oh eaten. My God,
1: that's hilarious. And you just think like. I'll go for the lunchtime. Yeah, I mean, yeah, thing, I mean yeah. so
0: <laughs> go for like the two o'clock. Yeah, yeah, just be post golden. lunchtime.
1: <laughs> or That's hilarious. My I mean, God. so
0: acting it's a huge
1: part of your life, but it's yeah. not so maybe severe a result of you your life you, as Well, yeah, <laughs> as I mean, some, some will take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it is, it is one of those things where, the, you know, you, you can try all the tricks in the book, but it's, at the end of day the, there's so many things that are out of your control. So yeah, again, getting, or excuse me, getting someone like Eddie saying, yeah, you know, do your best and leave, it, it will make you more sort of mentally stronger. Because again, if I leave that room knowing mm-hmm. that I've done my best and mm-hmm. regardless of the outcome I will sit there and I'll go, Fair play, I I did my best and I and I, I didn't get it whereas if I do sort of half arse and I sit at home and go, Ah, oh, to fair I could, probably could have done this, made this decision and then I don't get it, I'm gonna be like, Yeah, I'm not surprised I didn't get it, I was lazy. Um
0: Do you think the fact that you have had a fair amount of success so far makes that easier though, because you don't have that doubt that you're good. Because you can look back and think, it's not that I didn't try really hard and I'm not good enough. Yeah. It's just that I didn't fit the role.
1: Yeah, I th- I think so. And I think um and it it's really there's a very fine line, I guess, with, with this kind of thing where you, you never want to cross over into arrogance, but you need self-confidence, otherwise mm-hmm. you won't survive. And I've always been confident in my own ability. And again, going back to this thing with drama school, if nothing else, it gave me the confidence to like you say, to say I know I'm a good actor, and I know that if I don't get a role, it's not a comment on my ability, it's mm-hmm. a comment on, again, one of these other many variables that go into casting something, and casting, I think, is an incredibly difficult job, like, I I was involved in producing a project called Windrush Square, um, I was basically in the play, and we're turning it into a TV adaption, so we yeah. had to, yeah, so we had to completely... There were some age-appropriate roles where we had to recast people. Right. So being involved in that casting process, there was so many things where you go, look, that person was brilliant, but they don't look old enough, or they yeah. don't sound old enough, or they don't... The, the thing with, with Windrush Square is it's about um, this uh, a family called the Johnsons. They're um, three generations of Jamaican immigrant. And so we had to cast the dad, the grandmother, and the sister. And so you had to look at it and go, okay, but this person doesn't look... Like, like the actress we yeah. already have in one of the other sister roles, well, you know, man. they're either, it sounds about say, but they're not dark enough or then they don't have the same facial structure yeah. and stuff like that. So it's so, I have a lot of respect for Carson directors because there is so much that goes into it. And again, you know, I can walk into a room, blow them away with the best performance of the day, but at the end of the day, if I don't look right, if I don't mm. fit in the, into the structure of this family that they're trying to create or the a narrative that they're trying to tell, you won't, you won't get it. It's, it's as simple as that um so yeah it's a very it is a very kind of savage environment but again know you've gone in done your best mm. it, it kind of it eases that that pain a bit and i think there's some people who will say oh i've gone and done my best but my best isn't good enough and that's when you start taking it personally and it gets yeah, quite destructive yeah. but i you know again being thick skin being quite mentally strong i can go okay again it's not coming on my ability it's Something else, hopefully.
0: And what is it about acting that grabbed you? What was it that even after three years of a history degree, you were like, no, this, this isn't, this doesn't make my cells yeah. like vibrate. You it's, know,
1: it doesn't get the juices flowing. I, I don't know. I think my if you talk to my parents, they'll say that I was always the centre of attention when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, I had, just I had to do. Something as stupid as I don't know, like, okay. But you just I just had to do something stupid to get myself into like the limelight <laughs> okay. and the, way to be the center of attention, and that has just translated well into my adult <laughs> life now, where um I'm now trying to get paid to do it. So it's yeah, I just I felt like there was nothing quite like the thrill of performing, mm-hmm. and it's just I don't know, it's, it's just I get a real kick out of it. I think convincing. Making to convince a a crowd or a a kind of room of people that you are someone else and getting to experience, supposedly on the other side getting to experience other kind of lifestyles and other other adventures I think is is incredible and especially things that you are not going to or like to have experienced Mm. or things you haven't experienced for a long time. There's so many different stories out there that are really different to my my own personal story that I think the idea of getting to you know experience these things is, is just experience it really closely. exciting. Yeah. Um
0: I did a an open mic night the other night. Oh yeah. And absolutely terrifying. Of course. Was it made. Horrendous. Um but coming off the stage like that buzz. Yeah. And I remember saying to my friend, like I can completely appreciate how artists and, and bands and things become addicted to drugs and substances because this high is like nothing else, and yeah. coming off stage, of course, you want to make that continue. Like, yeah, you want to I, hold on to that, like fire.
1: It, yeah, there, there is literally nothing like it, and I think, you know, coming off, like, say, off of the stage, or like, just hearing applause, hearing just reactions, mm. just, I think that's the thing for me is making people react, whether they are angry, happy, you know, glad, sad, or mad, yeah, in, yeah. or one, or a shade of all three, making someone react to something you're doing. And hearing or feeling that really visceral response. So how
0: do you translate that to, to screen acting? Because you don't have that immediate reaction.
1: No, i mean, That's yeah, very true. I think what I mean there, there is an immediate reaction when you kind of you cut takes and some you're right, one of the crew you see, goes yeah, fucking out. So yeah, I, I was doing a film a couple of weeks ago, and, and I wasn't in the scene, but I was watching it, and one of the other actors. Um, made a joke to this girl about like, oh it's lucky or funny with a face like that and it was one of those like well I just went <laughs> and at the scene and I was like, fuck and so there is, there is that kind of there is a slight sure. feedback.
0: I guess yeah there's so many um, crew members to Exactly from. so there yeah. is there
1: is a, a kind of a, a semi immediate um, personal feedback. Um, but you know quite often you you don't know what's gonna land. And so there's been times where, you know, I've shown someone a film and they've laughed in a place where I was like, what? <laughs> Like that's so dark. Why are you laughing?" Or they've, you know, cried a bit that I thought was funny. They're doing this. this you can't predict people's reactions. Mm.
0: I guess um, as well with screen, it's edited. So
1: exactly another layer yeah. of
0: the delivery that you gave.
1: Exactly, and how that it might
0: have been altered slightly, portrayed, mm. and how it
1: kind of at what point it kind of jumps you, and with what the kind of severity that it comes at you with. Um, yeah and I just yeah man there is just nothing like that kind of provoking reaction out of someone and I think more so on stage than screen I mean again when I was doing um, Windrush Square obviously it's it's set in 1980s Brixton and it's again it's around this family and how they kind of experience police brutality and racism and like the experience like the race riots and sort of the New Cross fire which is where like 13 uh, black kids died in like a house party fire when like some I think some skinheads like firebombed the house Um, things like there was the Cherry Gross incident where like a black woman was shot in her house by policemen there was a Colin Roach incident where again a young black guy got shot and killed in a police station and so there's all these things that you're kind of discussing and then there's all of this stuff and then their youngest daughter brings up a white boyfriend which is where I was involved and just kind of like getting the reaction of people when sort of racial tension starts to build between the characters and you know, there's real big bits where they, my character, I, I played a character called Lucas um, and the girl playing, the character that was my girlfriend, we had this argument and there's a line where I turned around and was like, well, you're only saying this because I'm white, like, you're only saying this because your family are black and, and stuff like that. There's only, like, this whole thing about like, oh, there's always drama because your family is black and it was like, you hear the with the audience like gasp Cringe. and you feel them tense yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and knowing that something you've, done. Especially, you know, like I played this set in the 80s you Now it says something that resonates with them now is really kind of, yeah, it just stirs something in you and, and obviously we're now trying to turn that into into TV and um, so the process of doing that and kind of rewriting the script and explore, managing to explore more stories and you know, expand on the new Crossfire and the Colin Roach incident and the and the Cherry Gross incident and the Brixton riots and being able to expand all of that and it's really, I mean, it's, it's harrowing for one because it's horrifically relevant to what's happening for sort of 30, 40 years down the line.
0: And as a um, history student, it must, must be really interesting to sort of, you said Omar was sort of saying, you, the importance of learning history now is to change the future, like it's so yeah. important, and it's so, fr- because it doesn't feel like we're learning anything at the moment. Exactly, it no, like it's incredibly giant, it's all, almost. yeah,
1: it's all coming back around and Especially with with the really recent Windrush scandal, mm. where people were starting to get deported after living here for yeah. since the sixties, it's the whole life, it's some of them, like honestly, insane. And I think it was what pushed us to, to say, okay, we need to, because the play got was really well received, but it wasn't reaching enough of an audience, and we kind of wanted a way to to kind of because you know the Windrush generation and Black history bar the civil rights movement in America, is not taught in schools. It's just It just isn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think we wanted to find a way to kind of communicate this story and explore the experiences of, you know, these kind of immigrants from the SS Windrush, these, these three generations of, of, of immigrants. We wanted a way to kind of, a, a, a larger range, in a sense, a kind of way to ex- explain that and kind of communicate this this kind of hidden history to a wider audience. And so that's when we kind of started building this mm. rewriting script and kind of trying to build it for, for screen. Um, and we've actually, literally in the next couple of weeks, we sort of a, a few months ago, we shot a pilot episode, sort of 10-minute pilot kind of concept, proof of concept um, segment of the script. So that's going to be released in the next couple of weeks. We're going to put up like a crowdfunding campaign to try and get funding for it. And... Um, because we literally just like there's a few you know, there's a few things starting to come to the surface. There's a sh- there's a show on at the National at the moment called Small Islands, which is about the wind SS windrush and, and kind of windrush generation. But at the time, to so are sort of just post World War Two, there doesn't really seem to be a lot about, you know, post that again, like the nineteen eighties and then the kind of the attempts at integration and and the kind of the experiences of of again these these the immigrant black families yeah. and their and and their experiences of of Trying to integrate in London and the, the backlash and the police brutality, and again, the riots, and all of this crazy stuff. We don't feel like there's anything out there like mm. that, um, which is why we're trying to kind of really push for that at the moment cause I think it's a really good time to go with the momentum where the, the people want to hear these stories now. Um, which is why I can't try and bring it to the forefront, yeah. So, um,
0: were you saying you're yeah. producing this,
1: producing and acting in it? So, so you are acting, yeah
0: are going to ask if someone else is in the role and how that how strange no, that was we, watching someone else no, no, play we, that part. What
1: we did was we we only recast the parts that weren't age appropriate. So right. we're you know everyone in Monument Productions, which is the, the company that we're all a part of that created the play and we're now creating the TV series. We. Are all of the same age, so we. But we had obviously with stage, you can so have someone play like a grandma, stage, yeah. you can yeah, have yeah, someone yeah. play a dad. I
0: see.
1: Um, and they played them fantastically, but now obviously for screen,
0: for the, the visual, exactly, yeah. you
1: need to have age appropriate actors. So we, yeah, we went about this whole process of of casting and getting a crew together and finding locations, mm-hmm. and that was that was insane. That was a side of the industry I've never kind of dabbled in and it kind of, again,
0: it's, yeah,
1: it is, it really is, and it's it's the slog, it's the real kind of graft of producers and ADs of just trying to get everything together, Um, and then you realise that, you know, a lot of the time as an actor, yeah, you just sort of swan on to set, and you kind of say your lines, and you go home, and there's a lot of preparation into that, but the the logistical Mm -hmm. and admin work that goes into putting a shoot together is, is insane, especially even something as small as that. We were only shooting for a day. Um, so it's kind of, again, it's kind of filled with this newfound respect for, for producers and casting directors because it is a, a daunting job. It really is. Um, so yeah, but like I said, so we kind of, the ones that were age appropriate, we then sort of, so we produced and everything and then we also reacted in it as well. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been an insane process. It really has.
0: Sure so yeah. we, we touched briefly on what your sort of typecast as but what, yeah. what is your ideal role like what oh, do God, you love man. playing because you mentioned you enjoy provoking a reaction yeah it, does that have to be a positive reaction or do you kind of no I the mean villain?
1: not not necessarily I for example I it's, it's kind of interesting I've done a lot of kind of leading roles and <laughs> it's like oh you know I went travelling for a while <laughs> it's friend, that kind of thing that I've done with lead roles.
0: if you're in a film you would be the main character. I That's, like, not That's not actually quite right? a compliment. Yeah. Um, not a good compliment.
1: But I also so I've I've done I've done a fair bit of that um, and action. I find action. I did this this great little um, sort of zombie film called Decay, and I was you know. <laughs>
0: Where can I find
1: that? It's actually not out yet. It's oh. not out yet. Um, <laughs> but it's you know it's it's a really great kind of zombie film, and it's got this kind of little sort of like mental health twist in it, which I think is really really interesting. But essentially, I was just like running around, shooting zombies, running, jumping, climbing. It was brilliant, fighting, yeah. That that was really, really good fun. But equally, what I found is in supporting roles, where you're maybe like the the best friend of the lead or something like that, you have slightly more. I don't know if this is a bit controversial or not. There, I feel like you maybe have slightly more um, creative license, maybe slightly more leeway to do something a little bit more rogue with it and to carry a slightly ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I feel like it's maybe... I've found it's actually maybe slightly easier to get a reaction out of someone as a supporting character because you're often bolder and
0: you're not funnier or angrier
1: or more racist or more sexist or more homophobic or more, more something than the protagonist is because the protagonist will often be, like you say, this kind of quite well-defined mm-hmm. character who is whilst maybe a, a kind of whole spectrum of things is wholehearted more one thing yeah. than anything else, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you can They're come the in as a support role the yeah. Yeah. and you can be a whole kind of spectrum of things. I think there's a little bit more, um, freedom in that. So as much as I do, I really do love lead roles and the idea of like, car- not carrying, that sounds really sort of disrespectful to the other roles, but having mm-hmm. that kind of like weight in a character and that kind of presence in a story is really, really interesting. Um, Support I like yeah, you get to be more provocative slightly, mm. I think, and that's that's really, really good fun. Um and yeah, but by no means does that have to be a, a good thing. Again, like, you know, with Windrush Square, my character Lucas was he's a very likable young man, but then he, you see the side of him where he just goes like, I'm really sick of everything being about race, for example. Or like and he just says the odd thing where you just go like, Oh well, you're actually a bit of a prick. And, and I
0: guess that's more based in ignorance than than active mm racism mm. but it's just yeah. the fact that he doesn't know and in a way I think those characters are so important because they highlight that ignorance and yeah. it's very easy for an individual watching that to be like oh shit like I've said that yeah. before and to watch someone else I don't know say that deliver that line in just as an, in their in their sense innocent way it sort of highlights that. oh, fuck, Yeah, actually... I, I think
1: there's times where a lead character can kind of be a bit of a, a vessel for the story. Mm. And it's when you get these kind of supporting characters coming in who are the embodiment of these certain issues, that's when you start to react because, you know, otherwise you're kind of just watching these protagonists quite often kind of go through some highs and lows, but at the end, yeah. ultimately come out okay. And so I think it's these supporting characters that you find will be the ones that kind of provoke a bit of a reaction from you. I mean... Case in point, I watched The Virtues. I don't know if you've seen it. The Virtues on on Channel 4, absolutely incredible. And Stephen Graham, um, Neve Agar, I think it is. Um, I'm myself, I've completely forgotten the Irish lady's name. She's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But they... You know, Stephen Graham is is fantastic and he's brilliant. And the story is kind of funneled through his experience. But then you get these kind of supporting characters and they just bring this whole other awareness of the story, this whole other perspective on the story. And it's just... You, it, it's that that provokes reaction, I think. You know, it's, it's those characters and their stories and how they interact with the protagonist that often kind of creates that friction that creates a really interesting story. Um, yeah.
0: Do you find that translates into real life? Do you enjoy provoking reactions from people... Do you like baiting people? Um, do I like like baiting people? Do you enjoy
1: Um I mean I enjoy being devil's advocate in an okay. argument every now and again, but I think I i again I think this kind of goes into the performative side of my personality. I enjoy making people laugh, like uh-huh. and, and just telling stories that, it, that, that interest people. Um so I guess yeah, yeah, in, in a way I, I like to be kind of a bit provocative and <laughs> I don't know, I mean that's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's like that, yeah. the Kanye
0: West and <laughs> song. It gets the people going. <laughs> exactly, it gets the people going. It's provocative.
1: Um, yeah, so I yeah, and I I think that's always a, a good thing, you know, to try and provoke. Well, maybe not always, but it, I I think you know taking it out of an active acting context to kind of provoke people into a certain discussion mm. or a certain, I don't know, yeah, I guess a certain, a certain discussion is is t- it tends to be a good thing unless it's, I guess. I guess what we were talking about earlier with Brexit, it's good to have a dialogue, it's when it becomes emotional that it kind of becomes a bit more damaging.
0: Because I feel as though in this kind of age of of filter bubbles where Google and Facebook and all these algorithms, they show you what you want to see because that's what creates their revenue, that's where all the advertisements come in and if they can read you as an individual and they can predict what you're going to click on, that's going to make the money. And so they they have no incentive to help you grow as a person. Because sure. then you're unpredictable. Yeah. They want you to stay in this narrow box so yeah. that everything you do, you know, they, they can feed this kind of thing. And so that's interesting. they yeah. surround you yeah, 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 yeah. with this information that's going to keep you in that bubble.
1: Absolutely. And
0: so having these discussions now, like I remember with Brexit... Everyone on my Facebook feed and all of the information I was receiving from Google and all these searches—it was all reinforcing the fact that no one wanted it. So when it yeah. happened, it was like,
1: "What the now, fuck?" I think that's Where a I yeah. When you, yeah, absolutely. Every, literally, I'm just, everything on every social media I surrounded myself yeah. with. Every yeah. person that I talked to was, well, of course, I'm voting Remain. Yeah. It's like what, a, like it'd be insane not to. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're right. That's why it was so giant because we live in this bubble of everything that we think is reinforced by everything we see on our computers and our phones. Yeah, and so
0: you're right. I think these these conversations and these sort of controversial issues is painful to discuss because this bridge has been created. Mm. And so trying to bring this together to understand one another, like there is no way that you can have a discussion with someone who did vote for Brexit, unless you can appreciate the reasons yeah. they did. And right. there was this study that looked at, people were asked to write down, to write a kind of um, argument against why X, Y, Z should happen. Yeah. And they wrote, the, they knew they were writing it to people of the opposing opinion, but they wrote it in a language that would persuade themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, it made sense to them, of course, like this is sure. what would persuade them. And they, ha- they couldn't read that other person. And appeal to the values of that person to be like, this is why it's a good idea. Yeah,
1: I, I feel like we're very stuck in this in this thing where you it, it's almost impossible to have a, a discussion with someone with an opposing view without it becoming a kind of slog of like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say insults, but kind of an attack on the yeah. person personally.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um,
1: and it goes into something I, I saw about, you know, you see on Facebook when you do see things pop up from people who did vote Leave and you see people on there, even now I get a lot of people who vote Leave saying like, begrudging the fact that a lot of people who voted Remain call Leave as racist, but then you get in the comments, you get people saying, okay, well, let's have this open discussion, but then it starts and it snowballs and people get personal because yeah. people get upset, and yeah. people get invested and it becomes, it's no longer an amicable discussion where you want to understand the other person's opinion. It becomes this kind of like, here's why you're wrong kind of attack.
0: Yeah.
1: And that is just I've, I think it's it's not conducive. It doesn't help. I don't think it really gets you anywhere. I feel um, like a
0: huge part of that as well is in this advent of, of social media and technology. Like it's incredible in the fact that it gives you a platform to speak to people you wouldn't see normally. Sure, but yeah. at the same time you don't get to read their expressions. You don't we don't know how to deal with conflict anymore. Like if you said no. something now to me that was offensive I find it very difficult to tell you that because I've not yeah. had I've not had to. I could message point. someone and yeah. be like, hey, what you said earlier kind of offended me, blah blah blah, and I can read it through multiple times mm. and analyse it, but I don't know how to deal with real life conflict. Yeah. And it's because of the invention of these tools that they are brilliant. I really don't yeah. want to dismiss them, but at the same time we don't learn how to yeah. And it's like with kids now, you're, you're taken out of a subject because it might, it might upset them, they're a bit sensitive. Yeah. And like, you yeah, need to understand how to deal with difficult yeah. things. So I feel like with acting, mm. and with screen especially, it's a really good space to explore these controversial issues because you don't have that chance to interrupt someone and say, you're wrong. You know, you're forced to sure. sit and watch this narrative unfold. So even as you say, if there's a, a controversial supporting character who might say something
1: yeah.
0: kind of off colour, often that's then a tool you can watch their transformation or watch as they learn a difficult lesson. And it kind of... I don't know. It feels like it's, it's just a less aggressive place to explore some of these things. I don't know. Yeah.
1: I, I, feel, I mean, I feel like... You know, film. Um, I, mean, I guess I. Well, I guess kind of um, performance general. You no know, theater, film, what have you It's kind of. It's, a space to kind of express something, an, an opinion, an idea, and it's. You very. Few times we find, you know, a film or a play that's actually, not really about anything. There'll always be, something that it, You know, they always say that you know a play. Is or a film will be about an ordinary person having an ordinary life, but it's an extraordinary time in this wider mm. kind of life. thing. Mm-hmm. so it's always going to be, yeah, like I an opportunity to kind of express something, and I think I think that's really important. Um, because I said it, you know, people are, I mean, people aren't forced to listen to it, but people will be. Well, I think I think it's it's also a, a way of stirring. Conversation mm, about mm. something um, you know there's, there's been a ton of I mean obviously now we're talking about it, I can't think of any but there's been a ton of like controversial films that have started yeah. um, a discussion about something Um I think that's that's really interesting I think it's very important as well because it's it will be maybe things that you don't think about you don't, you don't really discuss and you think you've actually got quite set opinions on, on this said X, mm. Y and Z but when it comes to it, they know because of discussion, it might, it might turn out that you, you know, you
0: don't.
1: <laughs> so I think it is, yeah, it, it's a very kind of important format, I think. Um, I mean, at this sort of level, it's kind of, it's, it's hard to create something that is a, is a what kind of impactful comment on anything because okay. you're at this kind of level where what you want to make is something that's entertaining so make sure people watch it yeah so it's you know i think it's when you get into the kind of bigger more dedicated audiences that aren't just your mum and dad is that's when you're <laughs> going to start you know having the ability to kind of yeah really express some stuff and kind of really explore something that's quite topical um and i think you know um Again, with 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 Windrush Square, we that that was something that was immediately quite controversial, but came in this very lovable sort of story.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so maybe it's actually slightly different with theatre, actually, because it kind of, you, especially because you're you're kind of immediately selling tickets to a to an audience that are there. It's kind of I don't know. It's it's, it's a tough one. There's
0: I, well, not having acted in either of those medias in a very long time. I feel like the theatre has that immediacy. Yes. Yeah,
1: that, yeah, 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 And
0: because you're rooting for that person because you know they're in this vulnerable position of being on stage and you want them to do well. The same when you watch a, a, a singer perform, like, mm. at an open mic night. Generally, the audience there are so supportive. Yeah. There's, like, an extra investment.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: maybe, yeah, maybe that's, that's the case. Maybe just being, simply just being live is is a kind of, is more of a... There's a vulnerability, for an sure. An investment, and a more yeah. Um... Because you know, when I've gone to see some maybe slightly controversial plays or plays that kind of express quite controversial opinions, you do kind of sit there being like, oh, my God, does everyone, like, because I'm sitting here, does everyone think that I think that? It is quite exposing. It is quite oh, yeah, it's quite, it is quite like a vulnerable thing. Like, oh, my God, if I laugh at that, is people going to think I'm <laughs> this? That? And the other way yeah, you know, when you're watching a film, it's kind of just like, especially if you're at home. Yeah, you you're you on the be safe like,
0: there. Yeah. Course, yeah,
1: I'll laugh. That's funny, yeah. but it's yeah. You have to kind of worry about it. maybe is that kind of attitude that will get people talking, mm. get kind of people to take notice, and you go, "Oh, I didn't like it when I felt like that. Maybe it's time to yeah. Yeah, change." That's really interesting. Um,
0: I think we're going yeah. to have to wind up. Sure. Um, but yeah, thank you very, very much for taking part. Um I had no Thank idea where that, where that was gonna go, me, yeah. so it's really interesting. I really didn't um, cover yeah, any of the things that I you, wanted to talk about. Were, like, I was like, I no had cabin. notes and I didn't,
1: <laughs> I got carried away man. <laughs> it's um, good it's,
0: it's good. I feel like that's a nicer sign than if you were having to be like, yeah. oh what do I say I next? This is getting really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah,
1: I guess I'll uh, I'll come back for series two There messenger ball. I mean we barely touched on the message messenger. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's that's uh I was going to say that's hope, but then fame is one of those things where it's like...
0: Do you want to hope for that? Yeah,
1: it's kind of, it's it's like a byproduct of what you do, isn't it? It's like, it's almost like paperwork at an office job. It's mean, it's it's a byproduct of what <laughs> sure. you do. It's not what you, you don't Why do, you do it, it, it for fame. Yeah. You do of do it for... For the love. For, for the love. For the love. Oh, what a way to that, end. On yeah. that oh. note. <laughs> Do it for I'm the love. i goodbye,
0: her. but yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Cheers.